Good evening. Uh, welcome uh, to all of you. Uh, my name is uh, Fawaz Jajas, and I am the director of the Middle East Center here at the LSE, which is hosting uh, tonight's events on uh, America's response or responses uh, to the Arab uh, awakenings. <clears throat> it really gives me uh, great pleasure uh, to introduce uh, tonight's distinguished speaker, Professor William Quant, who holds a chair in the Politics Department at the University of Virginia. Uh, before joining the University of Virginia in 1994, uh, Professor Quant was a senior fellow at the uh, Brookings Institutions where he carried out research on the Middle East, uh, on American foreign policy towards the Arab-Israeli conflict, and also on uh, energy policy. <clears throat> before joining uh, the Brookings Institu Institutions in 19 uh, 90, uh, uh, 1997. Uh, Professor Quant served as a staff member on the National Security Council in the U.S. government um, and uh, Bill played an active part in the uh, uh, peace talks that led to the Camp David uh, peace accords between uh, Egypt uh, and uh, Israel in 1979. Uh, I don't need to tell you about Bill Quant's uh, scholarly credentials, truly diverse, extensive, uh, complex, and they cover a broad range of topics and ideas. Um, and, and, and Bill knows, I, I read his books as an undergraduate, as a graduate. Um, I assigned his books to my undergraduates and graduates. And Bill, I want you to know that uh, some of my students will assign your books to their undergraduate and graduate students. And let, let me give you an idea about just a glimpse of some of the books that uh, Bill has written over the last uh, 30 years or so. Uh, peace process. Uh, America diplomacy and the Arab-Israeli conflict since 1967. Uh, decade of decisions. American foreign policy towards the Arab-Israeli conflict, 1967-1976. Camp David, uh, Peacemaking and Politics. Between Ballots and Bullets, uh, Algeria's Transition to Authoritarianism, from Authoritarianism. This is really, this, this gives you an idea about, I mean, he has written on Palestinian nationalism, he has written on Turkey, he has written on many aspects of Middle Eastern politics and American foreign policy, and Saudi Arabia, and in particular, Saudi Arabia quest for security and the relationship between security um, energy uh, and religion. Uh, so yes, very diverse. But to me, much more important than the extensive and the diverse nature of his uh, writings are the complexity of his writings. Uh, and I'm not exaggerating here. Uh, nuance, balance, and rigor are words I use for his writings. Uh, and a sense of fairness. Uh, and I think if there is really one point I would like, you to, I would like to leave you with about William Quant is that his deep knowledge of Middle Eastern politics, uh, the internal politics of the Middle East, that many American policies, the so-called policy experts, lack. Uh, he's really, he really has been a voice of sanity among an army of American uh, policy experts who basically exercise considerable influence on the understanding and the making of American foreign policy, in particular in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. And here probably 
you think I'm exaggerating, I'm not. William Kwan truly is the dean of specialists on American foreign policy in the Middle East. And for this and other reasons, please join me in welcoming uh, Bill Kwan to the LSE. Thank you very much, Fawaz, for that very generous um, and somewhat exaggerated introduction. Uh, when someone describes your writings as complex, that seems to me to suggest they may be impenetrable. I hope that's not the case, and I hope that my discussion with you this evening of American policy toward the Arab uprisings, the Arab revolutions, we haven't quite come up with the right name for these yet, uh, will not be impenetrable, um, although I hope it will be sufficiently complex to give some sense of the reality, which has been, um, I think, uh, one that uh, is, is, cannot be put on a bumper sticker, which is pretty much the way most American foreign policy guidelines these days try to be condensed. So let me start by saying that I think there's a kind of um, irony in the fact that these Arab revolutions <clears throat> that erupted in 2011 uh, on President Barack Obama's watch. Because had they done so just a few years earlier, President George W. Bush and his cheerleaders for the democracy agenda would have very likely embraced them and taken credit for them as well, at least until they showed their Islamist dimensions. But Obama's cool and rather consciously realistic stance toward the Middle East had been forged in opposition uh, to the Iraq War uh, and to its forceful <coughs> experiment in regime change and imposed democratization, as well as other excesses, rhetorical and real, in the George W. Bush administration. So Obama, from rather early on, in fact, 2002, when he was just a state senator in Illinois and nobody yet had thought he might become president someday, had actually gone out on a, uh, something of a limb and had opposed the Iraq war in quite eloquent terms. And then during his campaign for presidency in 2008, he had talked in again kind of a realistic mode of engaging with the regimes <clears throat> such as Iran and Syria, putting the Israeli-Palestinian peace process back near the top of the agenda. And democracy promotion was actually not mentioned as much as you would expect from somebody who was trying to recenter American policy away from some of its excesses. So when the Arab revolutions of this year uh, broke out, they were not the first challenge to his assumptions that had forced a certain recalibration in the Obama administration. I think almost immediately his starting assumptions were challenged by the election of Benjamin Netanyahu as Israel's prime minister, because very quickly it became clear, I think, to him and to his inner circle of advisors that this was bad news for his hope of reviving something uh, called the peace process, and that has surely been the case. Another surprise was in store for him just a few months later when the Iranians went to the polls, and I think a lot of Americans perhaps rather naively hoped that this would be a moment for change in Iran, perhaps uh, an Iranian spring with the Green Movement. And of course, that didn't work out either. Would have had it done so, it would have made it much easier for Obama to actually proceed with his policy of trying to engage with a more 
moderate regime in Iran, but instead the, the election itself proved to be extremely uh, controversial, and once Ahmadinejad was uh, re-elected and reinstalled, the prospect of any early breakthrough in U.S.-Iran relations was also pretty much put on the back burner. But these challenges to Obama's initial expectations were soon overshadowed by the real tidal wave of change that began in Tunisia in December of 2010. Uh, sweeping away the Ben Ali regime within uh, weeks, so January 2011, he is gone. Uh, shortly thereafter, the revolution shifts to Egypt with the downfall of the uh, Hosni Mubarak regime in February. Uh, and finally, uh, the uh, ousting of Muammar Gaddafi uh, and his death in October. And that's, of course, not the whole story. We've uh, uh, seen, uh, we think, the departure of Ali Abdullah Saleh from Yemen. It's a little hard to tell on any given day whether it's really happened, but another long-standing autocrat in the Arab world has uh, seemingly uh, moved from the center, from center stage. So all in all, this has been quite a remarkable year uh, in, of change compared to the seemingly frozen political landscape of the Middle East in previous years. Uh, in addition to these relatively, quote, successful ousters of autocrats, uh, the four that I mentioned, we've also seen uprisings elsewhere whose outcome is harder to predict. Syria, which I'm sure many of you uh, follow closely, uh, but also the uprisings in Bahrain, which were put down with considerable force. And we've also seen many examples, uh, not of full-scale uh, uprisings against the regime, but demands for reform in places uh, from Morocco to Jordan and even Algeria. So change is in the air, and change always uh, makes it a little bit difficult uh, for policymakers in Washington where we're not known for people being terribly swift at understanding complex change in the world, it's very hard for them to deal with this. They just get used to the idea that the Middle East is a pretty stable area, the regimes don't change very often, and then all of a sudden they're just dropping like flies. And it is difficult uh, in these circumstances to expect very sophisticated or very quick uh, reactions to these unexpected developments. To get a sensible perspective on what's happening in conditions of these sort, you need really quite a deep knowledge, I think, of uh, a region like the Middle East. You need to have sound strategic leadership, uh, and you need a very skilled team around a president. Presidents, as smart as they are, can't do everything, they can't know everything, uh, and a reasonably effective, cohesive team around a president can often create the the dynamic of dealing effectively with uh, new circumstances. The worst guide in circumstances like this for what to do in these uncertain times is to listen to the pontificators who are very quick to express uh, opinions about what should be done in the press, in the media, in the think tanks, and especially in Congress. Public discussion, public discourse in the United States today has degenerated to the point where not just on foreign policy, but on virtually all matters of public policy. The discussion it amounts to little more than partisan bickering, much of it looking very much like games of self-promotion and intense, fierce competition. Uh, 
the fact that we are, of course, just one year away from a presidential election is not at all unrelated to the uh, onset of this atmosphere, but it's there pretty much all the time now. So facing unprecedented and bewildering change in crucial region of the, the world, the Middle East, uh, in circumstances of intense partisan opposition at home, uh, how has the Obama administration coped with the Arab Spring challenge? Uh, the answer, in my view, is not very well. But I would add that it would not have been easy for even a more uh, astute and self-confident foreign policy team or a more experienced president to have done very much better. Let's look at the major cases uh, for a moment and see what the record actually looks like. Let me start with Tunisia. Uh, Tunisia was not actually very much of a test for American policy. It was clear from WikiLeaked cables, I guess that's a word now, anyway, cables that were leaked, um, uh, that as early as 2009 and 2010, the American ambassador in Tunis was reporting in detail that Tunisia, quote, should no longer be considered a reliable ally of the United States, and that the regime was deeply corrupt and that there was growing opposition to Ben Ali's dictatorial rule. The leaked cables became public in early December 2010, just before the uprisings triggered by Bouazizi's self-immolation. American policymakers who kept an eye on Tunisia, and there, quite frankly, are not very many of them, were perhaps surprised by the way that events unfolded. But they were not alarmed, and they were not particularly shocked. Thus, the United States fairly quickly rallied behind the new order and has generally been supportive of the revolution there. Hillary Clinton has visited Tunisia uh, and uttered appropriately nice words. More interestingly to me is that the Anahta leader, Rashid Ghanoushi, has just been in Washington. He's made the obligatory uh, tour of all the think tanks and media outlets, giving interviews. He even went to the very pro-Israeli Washington Institute for Near East Policy to prove his moderation. Uh, and in his uh, discussions in Washington, he went out of his way to praise the Obama administration for adopting a good policy toward Tunisia, toward political Islam. Uh, and for the moment, I think that has led many uh, in Washington to think that Tunisia is probably on a track that will lead to some kind of a promising uh, democratic outcome. Happens, I agree with that judgment, and I think that uh, if there is any way for uh, the United States and its allies to, to help the Tunisians consolidate their moves toward democracy, so much the better. But this has not been a real a difficult test for the United States. The stakes were not huge. The strategic interests in Tunisia were not large. There was no great vested interest in the Ben Ali regime. And so this one stands as the kind of good example of accommodating change that we did not foresee. But once it began to unfold, we pretty much got on the right side of history of this one. Egypt, obviously, was a much tougher case. And, the, and Obama and his team were not as sure-footed in dealing with it. Mubarak, for all of his flaws, had been a solid American ally. He had cooperated with the United States on Gulf security. He'd kept the peace with Israel, which is very important to Americans. And, that, and he had provided unmentionable services to the United States in the war on terror. 
The relationship between the Pentagon and the Egyptian military was particularly strong. Bush 43 had pushed gently for reform and democratization in Egypt, but the moment that the Muslim Brethren showed their strength in the elections of 2005, the parliamentary elections, Washington tamped down its ardor for democratic reform. Cairo proved to be an early stop for Obama uh, in his travels uh, as newly elected president in 2009. He uh, went to Cairo as part of his outreach to the Muslim world and gave a major speech at Cairo University in June of 2009, which did actually contain some implied criticism of the Mubarak regime. And it's striking that Mubarak was not in the audience when the president spoke, nor was he mentioned in the speech. But there was certainly no indication that Washington was reassessing its fundamental relationship with Mubarak or his uh, inner circle. That said, uh, all Egypt watchers, my acquaintance in the United States, were quite aware that a change of some sort was on the horizon. It had been on the horizon for, for years. Mubarak was aging. Rumors of his son succeeding him were rife. And the favorite Kyrene guessing game uh, in establishment circles was to speculate about the après Mubarak, often speculated in French, in fact. Uh, when, who, and what difference would it all make? I've been going to Cairo almost every year for the past 20 years, and some version of this conversation was standard fare. So the idea that change would eventually come uh, was, again, not particularly shocking. What was surprising uh, was the way it came, January 25th and the succeeding 18 days of growing protests, uh, very dignified, mostly peaceful protests. Uh, it was really quite remarkable. After Tunisia, of course, it wasn't particularly shocking to see this because in many ways the two movements had a lot to, of similarities. Because the protest movement revolution, if you will, was mostly peaceful and focused on a clear national demand, Yachal Mubarak. Uh, and it was not primarily about the United States or about Israel. Um, all of this meant that Americans could watch this happening and by and large feel pretty good about it. This looked like a good revolution. And for the first time ever, to, in my knowledge, Americans were actually glued to the television watching Al Jazeera English live. It was almost mesmerizing, and for the first time, you can actually get Al Jazeera in English live on cable networks throughout the country. People who weren't getting it demanded it. Their cable networks very quickly introduced it. Even in Charlottesville, Virginia, I can now watch Al Jazeera live. That's new, and it proved itself on this occasion uh, that Americans could actually watch the revolution unfold in its uh, uh, remarkable variety. So there actually was a lot of admiration for the Egyptian people as they stood up for their rights, for their dignity, and their call for democracy. Mubarak's wooden and paternalistic performance won him no friends. And within days, uh, officials in Washington were trying to ensure a, quote, soft transition. Exactly what this would, would mean was not clear. Uh, some in the CIA and at the State Department seemed to mean by this that they wanted to make sure that power would remain in the hands of people whom we knew, like Omar Suleiman, whom Mubarak had just named as vice president, and that the army would not shoot at the protesters so that in the post-Mubarak era, the army could be expected to play some kind of a role uh, in uh, 
uh, stabilizing the country. As I mentioned earlier, it was really with the military that we had the closest relationship. During the 18 days of the revolution and then over the succeeding months, the United States, in my view, was largely reactive, usually lagging behind the rapidly changing reality on the ground. The key channel of communication between the two countries as the crisis unfolded was the link between the Pentagon and the Supreme Command of the Armed Forces, the SCAF. On the diplomatic side, the Secretary of State in the White House seemed to believe that Mubarakism without Mubarak was the preferred option. Omar Suleiman was known and respected and had the added advantage of being the Israelis' favorite candidate for the post-Mubarak era. The fact that many in Washington thought that he might be acceptable to the protesters in Tahrir Square shows how out of touch with Egyptian opinion they really were, in my opinion. By early February, Secretary Clinton uh, had the idea of sending Frank Wisner, a very successful former uh, ambassador to Egypt, a man who knew a lot of Egyptians and was well regarded by many of them, to Cairo to deliver a message to Mubarak uh, and to the army. And it seems that he was given instructions to urge Mubarak to agree to step down and to, to say that his son would not succeed him. Uh, he also delivered a message to the military not to use force against the protesters. Uh, and I think those were, were useful messages to be conveyed at that time. Now, as he was in Cairo without any further instructions, uh, an idea was being discussed in some circles, including by uh, Egyptian Americans, that in order to bring about the kind of reforms that would ensure that Egypt could have a more democratic future, ironically, Mubarak would have to stay on through his full presidential term to preside over the amending of the Constitution so that elections could be held in the fall in order to uh, do it according to the, to the law. Um, I thought when I read this, this is kind of crazy in the midst of a revolution to be terribly punctilious about you know, how to do it according to a constitution that has just been suspended. Nonetheless, this caught on, and Wisner, uh, I think unfortunately, got caught up in uh, the idea that if you want a smooth transition after Mubarak, Mubarak should stay on until the end of his term and preside over the reforms. Hillary Clinton picked this up and said it publicly while she was at a conference in Europe. Uh, it made the protesters in Tahrir Square very angry indeed. And again, I think it showed how out of touch with popular sentiment people were in Washington. Um, in any case, uh, this posture was soon made irrelevant by the developments in Egypt. Uh, the crowds demanded not only Mubarak's departure, but that of uh, Omar Suleiman as well. And the army took the side of the protesters uh, and threw both Mubarak and uh, Omar Suleiman overboard. Uh, Obama saw this coming slightly before his aides. He was traveling uh, in the Midwest when things were coming to a crucial moment, and he went on his own and announced that the United States sided uh, with those who wanted Mubarak out, and we would support the new uh, order of things. So the United States barely managed to end up uh, not looking totally out of touch as the transition actually came. The Pentagon was asked to convey this new presidential 
view to the SCAF and did so very quickly. So the United States ended up barely on the right side of the revolution, but not showing much uh, swiftness in appreciating how, how deep the demand for change really was. So to say the least, I think American policy during these days did not look very agile or very well informed. But I would also add, having worked in government during the Iranian Revolution, although thank goodness it wasn't my primary responsibility, but it is hard in the midst of revolutions to see clearly where they are heading, and it is not without some cost to abandon a longtime ally and to turn a deaf ear to those like the Saudis and the Israelis who were in a state of near panic. Finally, as much as the revolution seemed to be all about ending dictatorship and allowing a pluralistic democracy to flourish, a cautious policymaker might be excused for wondering whether the new Egypt, the Facebookian, as they were being called, would be all that new and or all that successful, uh, or whether actually the new Egypt might rather resemble the old Egypt with the military still in charge and the Muslim brethren playing an outsized role, not the secular liberals who were our favorites. Such an Egypt, especially with the Muslim Brethren in a prominent role, would almost certainly take its distance from the United States on a number of important issues, especially including uh, involving Israel and the Palestinians. So given all these uncertainties, one might have assumed that the United States would have expressed support for the new order, wished the Egyptian people well as they rebuilt their institutions of governance, offered some general promises of support as Egypt got its economy up and running and otherwise adopted a somewhat detached stance. But this aloof posture would run counter to the enthusiastic pro-democracy views of frustrated neoconservatives and well-meaning <clears throat> well liberal interventionists, and perhaps would run counter to what seems almost a, an instinctive American desire to speak out <clears throat> on any world issue in a rather preachy way rather than occasionally biting our tongue, our tongues collectively. While this may, this democracy promotion <clears throat> that drew support from both the left and right, if you can speak of left and right in the United States, certainly speak of right, um, but this democracy promotion sounds sort of high-minded and idealistic, <clears throat> but from the viewpoint of Egypt's new rulers, uh, and from the perspective of some of its powerful political actors who were not getting American largesse thrown their ways, the, the SCAF and the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, democracy promotion from Washington sounded very much like foreign interference, and it was rather firmly rebuffed. The new, uh, newly arrived American ambassador was very nearly declared persona non grata for offering funds to Egyptian pro-democracy groups without the permission of the powers that be. <clears throat> Before the United States could really digest what was happening in Egypt, <clears throat> it had to confront four other manifestations of the Arab Spring, which I will just discuss briefly. Libya, Yemen, Syria, and Bahrain. If anyone had thought, based on Tunisia and Egypt, that the United States would be able to develop a one-size-fits-all policy, these four cases showed that each would have to be dealt with in terms of quite specific mixes of interests, costs, and perceived values. Libya was the most difficult and most costly. Gaddafi was an easy leader to despise, but in the mid-2000s he had, after all, given up his nuclear capability, 
uh, actually to the United States. We simply disassembled the entire thing and took it off to Tennessee to analyze it. Uh, he had established diplomatic relations with the United States. He had cooperated in the war on terror. And Condoleezza Rice, about whom he had an odd obsession, had even visited him in Tripoli, where he entertained her with a song of his own composition, praising her, his dear Lisa, as a true daughter of Africa. Very weird, weird moment. Uh, probably a bit spooky even for her. Everyone knew he was odd, maybe even crazy, but he no longer seemed very dangerous, except perhaps to his own people. Obama's initial response to the uprising in eastern Libya was more restrained and more cautious than that of his British and French allies. Almost immediately, domestic American politics came into play. Why wasn't Obama doing more to help the brave protesters in Cyrenaica? Most of the people who mentioned this didn't have any clue as to where Cyrenaica was, but that doesn't matter. All the old examples of Rwanda and Somalia were dragged out, cases where democratic presidents had stood by and allowed massacres to take place. Already thinking about the president's foreign policy credentials going into his reelection campaign, his advisors helped to persuade him <clears throat> to intervene, but not too visibly and not too assertively. Part of the caution came from the Pentagon, where outgoing Secretary of Defense Robert Gates's parting words were still fresh. Quote, in my opinion, any future Secretary of Defense who advises the President to again send a big American land army into Asia or into the Middle East or Africa should have his head examined. Strong words from a very savvy uh, <coughs> national security bureaucrat. The compromise position adopted by Obama and his team was to seek regime change in Libya but not in the way that Bush 43 had done Iraq. Instead, the United States would, quote, lead from behind, as some wag termed the policy, waiting for the Arab League and the UN to frame the issue in humanitarian terms to save civilian lives by establishing a, quote, no-fly zone. Then the United States left the ostensible military leadership to NATO, especially to the British and French, who flew most of the, the aircraft sorties, adding its own lethal and efficient contribution in the form of intelligence, command and control, and drones, the new favorite foreign policy instrument of American policymakers. The no-fly zone quickly morphed into a quick reaction from the air uh, force, and over time, Gaddafi's forces were ground down, and the Libyan re rebels, who probably would not have succeeded so well on their own, were able to win crucial battles in Misrata, and the Western Mountains, and then finally in Tripoli itself. Gaddafi and his immediate entourage disappeared, as we all know, and then he was captured and killed in a grisly act of revenge, reminding many onlookers that a post-Gaddafi Libya was likely to be a troubled and turbulent place for some time to come. But at least the outside intervention had been limited. Lots of sorties, but few boots on the ground. <coughs> and there was no real fear of an Iraq-style commitment in Washington. By the time Gaddafi was gone, the heat had gone out of the US domestic debate. Some of the Republicans seemed to resent what appeared to be a successful outcome for Obama and claimed with hindsight that we should have stayed out of the whole affair since post-Gaddafi uh, Libya might turn Islamist. On the other hand, curmudgeonly John McCain grumbled that we should have done more, that leading from behind was cowardly, and so on, and so on, and so on. 
just loves to talk, although I'm not sure too many people now listen. But most Americans seemed to be glad that the war was over, that the cost had been limited, there'd been no American casualties. For most Americans, Libya did not seem to be of great strategic importance, so there was little real concern for what might come next, at least to date. Considerably more important in terms of its strategic setting and more complex was Syria. As usual, Obama showed caution at the outset. After all, the United States had been dealing with Syria under Assad's father and son for four decades, often with a sense of pragmatism, if not real warmth. The pattern had been broken in the Bush 43 period when regime change enthusiasts wanted to put Syria in the crosshairs, but Obama had explicitly campaigned on the basis of wanting to engage with regimes like Syria and Iran and to revive the Arab-Israeli peace process, including the Syrian-Israeli track. Over considerable opposition in Congress, he had sent an ambassador back to Damascus in early 2011. The ambassador left about six weeks ago and has now actually just returned. Uh, but as Assad dealt more and more brutally with his opposition in the spring of 2011 onward, the Obama administration found it impossible to maintain a policy of engagement with the regime. At the same time, there was no appetite for military intervention. The Libyan model did not seem very relevant to the facts on the ground in Syria. Instead, diplomatic pressure and sanctions were about all that official Washington <coughs> seemed capable of coming up with. Hillary Clinton has met now with the Syrian opposition just in the last few days uh, and has given it rhetorical support, although not formal recognition. Uh, no one has shown much interest in the possibility of encouraging a negotiated outcome between the regime and the opposition, which the Arab League considered at one, has considered and the Turks at one point seemed interested in, but not so much anymore. And so the conflict goes on, drifting more and more towards something like a civil war. Ironically, Syria's crisis came just as U.S. troops were making their final departure from Iraq, uh, and there were few, if any, in the United States calling for those troops to be diverted to Syria for their next engagement. In short, the United States seems to have few ideas and little influence when it comes to Syria. Let me say a brief word about Yemen. Uh, apart from a few specialists on terrorism and a few Pentagon planners, most Americans would have a hard time finding Yemen on a map or recounting any relevant facts about its past or present. So when the uprising against Ali Abdullah Saleh began in spring 2011 and showed remarkable staying power, it attracted far less attention in the U.S. media than the other manifestations of the Arab Spring. <clears throat> Even when Tawakkul Karman won the Nobel Peace Prize for her remarkable role in the protests, Yemen remained a far-off mystery for most Americans. Some pundits anguished over Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula taking hold in uh, Yemen in upheaval, and some Pentagon planners seemed to be eager to increase drone attacks against this remnant of the terrorist franchise. And the U.S. did seem to lend support to the Saudi and GCC effort to persuade Saleh to give up power, but the overall impression was that for most, <clears throat> for most people in Washington, Yemen was a confusing and distant problem, one probably best left to the administrations 
of the GCC and the few people in defense and CIA who had clever ideas of what could be done without too much visibility or cost. It would be a mistake in this brief overview to overlook uh, Bahrain. <coughs> Here the values of, and interests of the United States came into a direct clash and interests won out. Even neocon enthusiasts for pro-democracy intervention were a bit worried that Iran might be playing a role behind the largely Shi'i uprisings. And once Saudi Arabia decided to act, the U.S. was not about to second-guess its moves. Only late in 2011, once the Basuni report was released recently with its clear condemnation of the Bahraini leadership for its abuses of power, did the U.S. lend its weight to calls for reform. So what to make from all of this? First, Obama and his team are generally cautious, pragmatic in their approach, balancing values and interests, and wanting very much to avoid another Iraq. In this sense, they are by temperament and outlook quite different from Bush 43, Cheney, Rumsfeld, and the neocons. But their caution often means that they seem to be lagging behind. Unsure of how to proceed, reactive more than strategic. There are few people in the upper reaches of this administration who have any real experience or expertise on the Middle East region. Certainly not at the National Security Council, not very many either at the State Department. And the surrounding public debate in the world of think tanks, Congress, and the media, as I mentioned before, is often even worse. Foreign policy discussion has become deeply polarized and politicized. Just listen to the Republican candidates debating, which they endlessly do these days, or watch Fox News if you have the stomach for it. As Obama heads into his re-election year, he seems determined to avoid big, costly mistakes. He is a politician. We must never forget that this idealist that we thought we were voting for in 2008, and I confess to having done so, is at heart a politician, a very familiar kind of politician who wants to win re-election. Some see the outline in his moves recently of a new shift toward a less interventionist style of foreign policy that some title offshore balancing, a policy much touted by academics from the realist school, which has the virtues of costing less than dreams of Empyrean, and costs matter in the American economy today. It provides some spare capacity for dealing with <coughs> contingencies whenever they arise, and it accepts the reality that the United States is simply not very good when it tries to assert itself as the global hegemon, or when it tries to nation build, or when it tries to export democracy. Yet I think it would be a mistake to read into this picture a return to US isolationism. We're too engaged with the world now for that, and we're too big and too large a part of the world economy. We're too powerful to be passive observers <clears throat> while an important part of the world, such as the Middle East, is going through unprecedented change. And while U.S. influence is limited, it is not negligible. So what I hope to see, especially if Obama is reelected, which is a possibility but not a certainty, is a serious rethinking of U.S. priorities in the region along the following lines. My advice would be, and of course nobody will take it, uh, but this is what I would urge. This is why I'm not in government. First, bring in a new group of advisors who actually know something about the region. Second, get serious 
about supporting the new, democracy, new democracies in smart ways. Economic aid, trade, investment, technology, education, all of these are things that can make a difference and we're pretty good at. Uh, and we should work closely with Turkey, Egypt, Tunisia, Morocco, and others who seem to be interested in real reform and moves toward democracy. Third, I would say don't give up on the Israeli-Palestinian peace issue, even though it looks pretty grim right now. And certainly don't give Israel a blank check, especially not on issues concerning Iran or on building of settlements in occupied territories. Fourth, if and when there is a new regime uh, in power in Syria, we should try to explore the possibility, once again, of an Israeli-Syrian peace agreement. All of the ingredients are there and have been for quite a long time. Uh, it would not be a, a difficult negotiation to revive and to bring to a successful conclusion. Fifth point, I would say cool off with the, on the hysterical uh, discussion about Iran, uh, lean on the Israelis not to preempt, and look for openings on the Iranian side. Patience is not much of a policy, but the alternatives vis-a-vis -vis Iran are all worse. Finally, I think we should understand that the Arab Spring, as exciting and dramatic as it is, will play itself out over many years and in many different configurations. We should try to help where possible, but I don't think we can control the process. One of the really inspiring things about the Arab Spring <clears throat> was the uh, sense that, that it was really made in the Arab world and wasn't simply a mimicking of something that had happened elsewhere. It certainly was not made in America. And based on this understanding that this is something that is fundamentally uh, indigenous uh, and rooted in Arab realities, I think we in the West, we Americans, should wish the Arabs well as they reshape their ossified uh, political institutions, uh, but we should make, remain largely on the sidelines as they work through these issues at this stage. Part of the excitement of watching the Arab Spring unfold has been to see the pride that ordinary Arabs feel in standing up for themselves. They will let us know when and how and whether we can be helpful as they try to undo the legacy of decades of stagnation. Thank you very much. about 45 minutes for questions, so we'll take uh, four questions at a time. We'll start with Roger. Bill, thank you very much for a very uh, illuminating and clear um, uh, exposition. How do you see the role of Saudi Arabia in all of this, and how have these extraordinary events affected the U.S.-Saudi relationship? Any questions? We have two questions in the back, please. Um, thank you, Professor Kwan. Um, you touched a little bit about the, the neocons and the influence on uh, the Middle East, which has been um, um, earth-shattering, really, in, over the last few years, and that they've still got their hands on the levers of power. And you failed to mention um, Dennis Ross, who was um, Obama's um, advisor on Palestine-Israel, and he is a, a known Zionist um, 
Aprachnik of APAC and Israel, and that didn't seem to come into your um, analysis. Could you explain that, please? Question, please. There are two questions. Hello, I've got a question about the upcoming election. To what extent do you think, when you talk about um, President Obama's uh, reticence, to what extent do you think that might be uh, by shape by the upcoming election, and do you anticipate a change, should he get reelected, um, anticipate a change in his policy or his behavior or his attitude, and do you expect a, a greater boldness coming from him, or do you expect that that's part of his personality and it'll all be the same? One more question here in the front row. Yes. Thank you. Uh, Nasser Khaloun, I'm happy to say that I quoted you a long time ago, 20 years ago in my PhD thesis. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the first time to meet you, so I'm uh, late 20 years. Thank you. Um, I'll pick up your uh, number two recommendation about uh, U.S. economic uh, assistance. I have a feeling there is a formulation now of a policy to boost the Arab regimes, regardless of uh, all the uh, you know, caution you put in your presentation about being surprised, whatever, and uh, uh, what's in stake. I have a feeling there is a movement to boost the new order. Uh, one, one indication I can say now, two days ago, there was in a Sharq al-Awsat uh, um, uh, uh, newspaper, an interview with, I think, Ambassador Taylor as being the Arab Spring ambassador. So there is something. The question that I would ask you, how long would it take? Would it be an election issue? Thank you. Shall we? Sure. Well, thank you for those uh, excellent questions. I'll do the best I can to give you reasonable answers. I hope I, I can. Uh, on Roger's question about Saudi Arabia and U.S.-Saudi relations, I think that when the United States <clears throat> turned against Mubarak, it was something that the Saudis were, were very unhappy about. They had argued that we should stay with him. I think that had something to do with this moment of hesitation where the State Department said, well, Mubarak should stay through the end of his term. And then Obama turned on a dime and said, no, he ought to go now. Um, so the Saudis went through a period of being rather annoyed. And they, as usual, think that the Americans have no clue as to what's going on in the Middle East and that they're the only ones who really know what's going on. Well, you know, they're right about the first half. I'm not so sure they're right about <laughs> the second half. Um, I think it became uh, a little less stressful when the United States basically turned a blind eye to Saudi intervention in Bahrain, which was a way of saying to the Saudi, we understand that you have national interests and we're not going to go out of our way to make your life miserable. The other thing that the Saudis seem to care about, and they seem more or less uh, satisfied that they can deal with the United States on this is the fairly tough line that the United States has been taking on Iran. Uh, so I would say that despite the irritation uh, that accompanied the, the first wave of the revolutions where the Americans seemed to be you know, kind of pushing uh, uh, Mubarak aside uh, and disregarding Saudi concerns, uh, the relationship is okay. Uh, should it be very much more than that? I don't think that Saudi Arabia represents the wave of the future in the Middle East. I think the Saudis are in a kind of bunker mentality uh, mode where they believe that money can keep them and their Gulf allies uh, in power for a good long time and that uh, 
the way things are going elsewhere in Syria, Egypt, uh, is simply uh, evidence that their form of uh, uh, polity is, is better than the others. I don't think the United States can afford to say the Saudis are our new um, best friend in the Middle East. We will always have a relationship of importance with them. Uh, both they will want it and we will want it. But I don't think it should be uh, a, a, a prominent factor as we try to figure out what should we do in Syria or Iraq or vis-a-vis -vis Iran. I think we need to think independently about our interests, about what's happening in the region. The, the Saudis have a lot of interesting perspectives on things, but in all honesty, I, I was there a year ago, and I found the attempt to discuss things like Iran uh, almost as difficult as talking to Israelis about the Palestinians. Uh, oh, I have three more questions. Yes. <laughs> I thought, well, I don't know that. Um, neocons. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I thought when Obama got elected that we would see uh, the end of their influence that, you know, it was kind of a repudiation of their policies and nobody is going around saying Iraq really turned out well. You know, let's design another uh, operation of that sort that will cost us another trillion dollars. And yet, you don't pay a penalty for having been totally wrong in American politics, as long as your name is famous. You know, somebody will want to interview you, and if not reputable news outlets, Fox will hire you as a commentator. <laughs> and simply being famous means you have a right to say whatever darn thing you want. And so they're back. Do they have influence? I don't think so. I think if you were to have an opinion poll asking Americans, what do you think of the project for uh, you know, let's imagine the neocon fantasy, regime change, Bush 43 style in Iran, Syria, or pick your next favorite country, or least favorite country. Uh, do you think that's a good idea? I think the vast majority of Americans would say, we tried that, didn't work out very well, uh, let's not go down that road. So I think their real influence is limited, and they really do not have much voice inside this administration. Now, I was a little bit horrified yesterday to see that the new front runner on the Republican side said, this is Newt Gingrich, yes, his real name is Newt, um, <laughs> would name as his Secretary of State John Bolton, one of the most discredited of the neocons, at least in my humble opinion. And that would really be dramatic. That would perhaps lead me to ask for asylum in some friendly country. <laughs> so I'm going to be very nice to my pretty English friends when I'm, while I'm here. <clears throat> but up until now, I would say the whole tenor and, and not so much the content of the policy, but the tenor of how you approach foreign affairs in this administration shows very little influence of the neocons. They really did discredit themselves. But they're out there. They... They provide the talking points now to the opposition. Uh, Dennis Ross, who you mentioned, uh, for all of the roles he has played, I would not put him in the neocon category. Uh, I think you correctly said he's very pro-Israeli and he's managed to mishandle, in my view, uh, Arab-Israeli negotiations for a very long time. He's now out, and I must tell you, I don't know the reason why. Uh, it could simply be that you know, he's accepted the reality that the, the issue that he was 
working desperately to get in charge of, the Arab-Israeli peace process is going nowhere. And I, I can tell you, I, I left the Carter administration one year before the re-election campaign came up. There's nothing like being on the inside and realizing nobody cares what you're talking about on foreign policy anymore because everything is about re-election. So maybe he simply concluded that there was nothing left to do. Anyway, he's also out. Um, he hasn't been replaced with anybody who knows anymore or has a different point of view. So I don't think his departure has any real significance. Uh, elections. Would Obama be bolder, more like the candidate we thought he was in 2008 rather than the president that he's become? I wish I knew the answer to that because I'm going to have to vote uh, in November and I don't want to vote for somebody who's going to be the same kind of president he's been to date except that the alternative will be almost certainly worse. I'd like to vote for somebody I, I really believed would make a difference and had learned from uh, the mistakes of the first several years and who could re-energize our policy uh, in smart ways. Um, I guess I don't believe that it's going to happen. Uh, I'd like to be surprised, but I think Obama, who is a very smart man, tells us something in his autobiography, The Dreams of My Father, which is a remarkable book. He says that I, I had to learn to overcome my anger as a young black man because I would never be able to make it in politics as an angry young man, angry black young man. So he said, I learned to make white people not be afraid of me. He said, this is the words he uses. And I think this was the key to his political success. He always came across as a mediator, as a conciliator, and people got to the point where race didn't matter. He was intelligent, he was always coming up with interesting compromise ideas. What this means is that as president, I think he has internalized this kind of instinct to go for compromise preemptively. And when you're dealing with a bunch of roughnecks like his Republican opponents and most of the world, when you preemptively compromise, you're in pretty weak position. So I think it's very hard for him to learn that to be an effective president, you sometimes have to stake out a pretty strong position and stick with it. I think that that goes very much against the grain of the way he trained himself to be an acceptable leader in the eyes of uh, most Americans. So I'm not very confident that we're going to see uh, you know, the big, bold uh, uh, American president if he's reelected. And American politics makes it difficult. We will have divided government. Uh, we're not going to see a sweep by the Democrats in, in uh, Congress and he will have to compromise with the Republicans in order to govern. And that will limit his ability to take strong positions on controversial issues like the Middle East. Finally, on uh, economic assistance, I don't want to imply that the United States has an awful lot of spare change to help revive the economies of Egypt or Tunisia or wherever else. That's really not the case. But the American economy is enormous. There are things we could do simply removing trade barriers that the Egyptians would actually appreciate. We keep Egyptian cotton out of the American market because Southerners grow cotton and they don't want uh, free competition. But there are a number of things you could do <clears throat> by way of making the American economy more open to uh, parts of the Middle East that would have some impact. 
I don't yet think that there is <coughs> the strategy that, that you suggested of giving a big strong boost to the new order. We don't quite know what the new order is going to be in places like Egypt. So I think we're in a very kind of wait and see mode toward most of the big manifestations of the Arab Spring. Uh, Tunisia is just small enough so that you know it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they come up with a successful constitutional transition, elect a new president, prime minister, that you will see a fairly nice hundreds of millions of dollars of aid being offered to the new Tunisian government, but it's chicken feed in the great scheme of things. Uh, it, it can make a difference in a place like Tunisia in a way that it would have no impact <coughs> on a country like Egypt. So I think big plans are simply not in the offing, partly because the American economy these days is really under a lot of strain. Another round? We start here. Hi, I'm Brian Gibson. I'm a PhD student in the history department. Um, in your first point, you mentioned that you wanted to bring in a new group of Middle East advisors. Um, who would you recommend to lead this group or be involved in this group? Uh, we have a question here. Oh, Robert Laver, Independent. I believe you did not mention the Jewish lobby in discussing U.S. policy towards Arab countries. And I think it's, it, it is a fact that certainly it dominates the set of the Congress. If I can have a second question. Um, Obama did put a condition on the Egyptian revolution in the sense that they should not break the peace treaty with Israel. Does that mean that Obama would cut aid to Egypt? And in view that, that most of that aid is military aid, it is a fact of whether it would be significant right. if it were cut. Thank you. Alan? Um, I would like to ask about the Muslim Brotherhood. Do you think the whole war on terror prism has um, distorted the capacity to look at the subtlety of what the real situation is in Egypt and what the Muslim Brotherhood represents. One final question, please, for the second round. Thank you. Uh, Yasser al-Ubaidi, Iraqi. Professor, if you really believe that America is into freedom and democracy uh, for the people of the Middle East, uh, why do you think it supported all these fascist dictatorial regimes over the last 30 years, including uh, our regime of Saddam Hussein in the 80s? Um, I think we are confused as to what you really stand for. You can't be liberators from fascists like Saddam Hussein and sponsors of that fascist 20 years ago. You lack credibility, sir. Um, I guess that was, you were saying that I was a supporter of Saddam Hussein 20 years ago. I'm not sure what evidence you're drawing. Oh, well, I thought you personalized it. Uh, if I have to explain my country's policies, I can try to do that. No, I'm not, but you made it sound very much as if I was responsible for Saddam Hussein. Okay. Uh, okay, I will uh, try to answer all of the questions. Um, I don't think it's probably uh, terribly helpful for me to give my list of favorites 
to, to be in the new administration. I'll give you an example of somebody that I think uh, should be listened to and could play a role. Uh, there's a relatively young scholar at George Washington University named Mark Lynch. He's an expert uh, Arabist. He has a, a blog that he has uh, kept for a long time. He engages with policy issues. He has views that I don't always agree with, but he is a well-informed person. He goes to the region, talks to people, including Muslim brethren, and I would think that somebody like that as the head of the National Security Council's Middle East office is exactly what you would hope to have. Real expertise, I mean, you, know, you don't make policies in those positions, but you, your analysis is useful. Uh, the fact that I don't think anybody's ever thought of that because he's been critical of Israel brings us to the second uh, issue, which is does the pro-Israeli lobby have a kind of veto power over things like this? And it's pretty close. Um, I think by implication I was, of course, talking about American politics, and that does have a lot to do with the outsized role of the pro-Israeli lobby. I'm not at all one to deny that. I don't think it is the only reason that our policies have been so skewed. We also have a very large and organized evangelical community that has become extremely pro-Israeli. In some ways in the Republican Party, I think they play a bigger role than the pro, the traditional you know, APAC uh, kind of lobbying. But yes, it is a, a real issue. Uh, uh, American policymakers who have to deal with the Arab-Israeli issue have one hand tied behind their back by domestic politics. Does that mean you can't do anything? I don't think so. I think, again, uh, presidents who know how to lead, they'll take some flack for doing what needs to be done. Uh, but uh, the first President Bush actually did stand up to the lobby. Uh, of course, he didn't get reelected, although I don't think that had much to do with his not getting reelected. Um, president I worked for, Jimmy Carter, uh, did stand up to the lobby on occasions. Uh, and, uh, of course, he also didn't get reelected. This is going to sound like there's a direct relationship here. Um, but, uh, you know, there are ways in which a president can address the broad American public and explain why national interests are at stake and usually win the public over. Uh, that's not been Obama's tactic. He's not uh, chosen to, to, to make the case. And as a result, again, I, I think he is kind of preemptively ceded to the uh, public opinion, even when on an issue like settlements in the West Bank, uh, the vast majority of Americans don't think settlement activity is a good thing for us to support. Even the majority of the American Jewish community doesn't think it's a good thing to support. Many Israelis think that Obama should have stood up to, uh, to Netanyahu much more firmly. One, one Israeli advisor to a previous government came to Washington and said, I don't, just in a private setting, said, I don't think your president was smart to take Netanyahu on over this issue, but having done so, he can't afford to be the one who backs down. Well, we did back down, and we shouldn't have, but that's the nature of the president, and it's the nature of American politics. So yes, it's important. Um, your question about uh, American aid to Egypt in the event uh, of a, a, a overt you know, breaking of the treaty, uh, I think it would be quite serious. And if Obama didn't use the threat of cutting military aid to Egypt, uh, Congress would insist upon it. And I think it would fundamentally 
uh, end the relationship with uh, the Egyptian military, who depend uh, very, very heavily on this. And I don't think it's going to happen precisely because of that. I think even the Muslim Brethren are trying to dampen expectations that they will break the treaty. They've talked about wanting to renegotiate some aspects of it. But I think it, it would be very, very reckless of any Egyptian to actually abrogate the treaty. Renegotiating is something else if you can do it. Uh, but abrogating it is a pretty serious step, and it would cause a real uh, breach, I think, in U.S.-Egyptian uh, relations, including military aid. Um, can the United States, having gotten itself in this mindset of a global war on terrorism and often conflating terrorism with Islam, or at least radical Islam, can we look at societies like Egypt and Tunisia and Morocco and elsewhere and see distinctions among more moderate and less moderate manifestations of political Islam. Um, I'm not sure. I think we're going to be put to the test because we're going to have to do it. I would say we've had a little bit of a learning curve on this. Uh, in Iraq, uh, we have created a situation in Iraq after toppling Saddam Hussein uh, of realizing that some of the new political forces that came into being were fundamentally politicized groups that had very strong religious agendas, and we've had to learn to deal with them, not always easily, not always very comfortably, um, but you know, necessity makes you sort of sober up and say, well, you can't refuse to talk to somebody because they happen to come out of a tradition where religion actually is a good part of their political identity. Uh, in Tunisia, it's proving to be pretty easy. I think Onushi, uh, with the exception of his visit to the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, where he was treated pretty badly. Um, elsewhere, uh, he's been viewed as you know, the face of uh, good moderate Islam. I don't think anybody's too worried about the PGD in, in Morocco. Um, the Muslim Brethren in Egypt is going to be an interesting test because they've been sort of on the margins of, of acceptability for American diplomacy in the past. There was a period when the American ambassador was allowed to meet with them, then he wasn't allowed to meet with them. Now it's all, everybody's rushing to you know, meet, meet these guys because once again they're called moderates. Uh, and they're behaving pretty moderately so far. So I think there is the capacity to make distinctions, um, but it really just depends on a, on a lot of how things go from here on out. But there is a, a portion of America that is Islamophobic. I thought until uh, a few years ago I wouldn't find myself saying that. Uh, I thought we had handled the uh, kind of issue of political Islam in our midst better than Europeans, and then came along the issue of the mosque being that was supposed to be built near 9-11 ground zero. And people did get really quite hysterical about that. And it brought to the surface a kind of latent Islamophobia that I don't think is too widespread in the United States, but where it exists is pretty intense. And it comes out in, in ugly ways. Um, so um, it's not going to be easy. I think you do find some of the Republican candidates have been quoted, and Herman Cain, who I don't think is a candidate anymore, but while he was, he, he actually said he would not have a Muslim in his cabinet. He was actually challenged on that and backed down a little bit, but not very much. 
So it's, it's a problem, but I think actually this is one issue on which Obama has been pretty good. And although I haven't said very many good things about George uh, W. Bush, he was actually not bad on this either after 9-11. He warned Americans not to blame Muslims and not to blame Arabs for what had happened in 9-11. And I, I give him some credit for keeping the public discourse from drifting in a more uh, anti-Islamic way than it might have in those circumstances. Now, why support the dictators and why pretend that we don't anymore? Well, you know, first of all, uh, I do think that countries have both interests and values, and they are sometimes in competition. Now, this puts me in the school of thought that is more a kind of realist discourse, which means that sometimes you deal with regimes for strategic reasons who are fairly unpleasant to deal with. For example, Saddam Hussein. The United States had no use for Saddam Hussein until the Iranian Revolution came along. Had it not been for the Iranian Revolution and the concern that this was going to spread elsewhere, uh, Saddam would not have been an ex We had no diplomatic relations with Iraq until 1984, 85. It was a strategic judgment. Uh, I think it was a questionable strategic judgment at the time. I was not in government at the time. I did not support it. But if you want to know why it happened, it happened in the context of the Iran-Iraq War of 1988. And the American judgment at the time was that Iran was a bigger threat. And we had our recent traumatic relationship with Iran over the hostage crisis. So we opportunistically gave some support, and don't exaggerate how much support. We did not provide the arms with which Saddam fought that war. It was the French and the Soviets who provided the vast majority of them. Uh, still, it is true that we supported Mubarak, we supported uh, a number of regimes that were autocratic. And I think we're all having to rethink whether that was a wise thing to do. I will also say we were not the only country in the world to do so. The Russians did it, the Chinese did it, the French did it, the British did it, and quite frankly, other Arab regimes did it with one another. So international politics, if you were to go back to the 19th century and to all the realist thinkers would say, internal politics of other sovereign countries is pretty much their affair and international relations deals with regimes as they are. That legacy still informs some people's thinking about international affairs. We deal with China. Is China a democratic country? No, but they do own several tens of trillions of dollars of our debt, so we deal with them. Is that a betrayal of the Chinese de democratic hopes? Probably in some way it is. Uh, is there an alternative that I can come up with and say, you know, we want to bring democracy to China, so we ought to do things totally differently today? No, I actually think China has opened up more as a result of our having engaged with China uh, and is a much more open liberal society today than it was 20 years ago. So it's not a very good answer. I don't think there are good answers to these things. But I do somewhat think you've oversimplified uh, the way in which you portray, you know, total support for Saddam and then total support for uh, the alternative. It wasn't quite that simple a picture. One final round. Sure. For more questions, we have this side. Let, let's take three questions from here and then, all right, remind her. 
thanks, Professor Kwan. Thank you very much. I'm Dania Akkad from the Middle East Center here. Um, I wanted to think into the future um, about the U.S.'s uh, long-term strategic interests in the Middle East. Um, you know, obviously the, the Cold War is over. Um, we're a multipolar world. Al-Qaeda isn't the threat that it was made out to be. Um, so, you know, into the future, what do you think the U.S. will want from the Middle East? Um, oil and APAC are clearly important, but, but into the future, what do you think we'll want? All right. Please. Um, thank you very much for your presentation. Um, how, can, how can you explain the relationship between um, Islamist uh, parties' um, uh, pragmatism and the United States administration pragmatism? while it's, it becomes a, a de facto that the Islamist parties have won, have achieved a, a major uh, victory in, uh, during the uh, Arab Spring. And is it part of a game or historical game that the United States administration used based on one of Condoleezza Rice's speech? I remember she said that we don't have strategic allies. And is it part of U.S. administration strategies that they are shaping and reshaping enemies and strategic allies responding to uh, the changing context and uh, what's going on in the Arab world. I mean, those who uh, gained the power as a result of the revolution, they are Islamists, so they have to reshape their allies following undesirable uh, changes, but it is a de facto. The other question is how a United States administration deals with Turkey uh, as it is uh, playing uh, a very important role in remapping the region. Thank you. Thank you. Gentlemen behind you, please, and then we'll take all of them, and then we'll have 10 minutes. Thank please, you. Please, uh, let, let's be concise and quick, because time is my name is Adam Mardini. Running against us. Uh, just in, in your opinion, what is the real scenario now for Syria? And do you think they are trying to weaken the, the political position of Syria to sign peace with Israel and to cut links with Hezbollah and Iran? Thank Thanks. You. We have a question here, the gentleman. Professor, are you aware of the fact that uh, Former British, sorry, former Saudi Arabian ambassador to Washington has declared yesterday that they are also in the race of producing nuclear weapons because Israel has got an arsenal which is uncomparable in the Middle East. Uh, I think Israel is the third largest country owning the uh, nuclear weapons of mass destruction. So is, uh, the Saudi Arabian. Uh, are not actually going to produce these nuclear weapons covertly. Uh, Turki al-Fasal, the ambassador uh, who was in London before he went to Washington, he has said that he will put out tenders to the world, to the, the whole world, to produce reactors and uh, buy uranium openly and produce nuclear weapons in, the mid uh, in Saudi Arabia to, uh, to rival the uh, Israeli uh, arsenal. Right. What do you think about this? Right, thanks. We have, we have a question here, please. Thank you. Uh, with the unstable and unclear situation in Egypt today, especially when it comes to the fate of the Camp David Accord, do you think that the fall of the Syrian regime at this particular time would be harmful to Israel? And if so, why is the U.S. pushing for it? Thank you. 
Sure. Great questions. Thank you. Um, you know, what, the first one was, uh, what will American strategic interests be in the Middle East uh, looking ahead? Um, it's hard to predict the future. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that oil will still matter, and therefore Persian Gulf and Arabian Peninsula uh, will attract considerable attention and particularly the flow of oil, although what we'll do about it, I, don't, I honestly don't know. But all the brave declarations by all of our presidential candidates that we're going to wean ourselves of dependency on Middle East oil is all nonsense. It's not going to happen, in, at least not in my lifetime. Uh, and Israel is, whether we like it or not, uh, a deeply embedded part of American concern about the Middle East. You, you listen to the political debates today, and uh, it's just astonishing. It's as if nothing other than Israel uh, really matters to the American political class. Even Obama, who I think does know better, uh, went to meet Jewish funders in the Democratic Party a few weeks ago and apparently said that there was no country in the world that was a more important ally of the United States than Israel. Now, to me, that's just resonates domestic politics. I can't believe that he honestly thinks that there is no other country in the world that's more important than the United States. But he says it. And the Republicans say it. So Israel and oil, yes, those are pretty obvious. I actually think that may be it for a while. Uh, the idea, you know, nuclear, nuclear proliferation is the other big issue. If Iran really does develop a nuclear weapon, and I'm among the skeptics, I think they want to capability just below the threshold of weaponization, but you know, I don't know. I mean, it's my guess. I think it's more logical that they would want that. Uh, but if the proliferation issue does spin out of control, you got Iran and then Saudi Arabia and then Turkey and, you know, I don't know, Dubai, um, that's going to cause a lot of concern. Nuclear proliferation is serious business and it will force the United States into rethinking uh, what, if anything, can be done about it. Uh, but otherwise, I think the trend in the United States is to say we've spent too much time on the Middle East with too little payoff for the past 30 years. It's turned out badly. Uh, the Iraq project didn't work out well. Uh, good luck to the Arab Spring, but it's not ours to manage. And meanwhile, Asia is the more important theater for the United States to reposition itself in. And I think you're going to see a quite conscious shift of attention, less concern with the Middle East, sort of sense good luck to them, but don't call us, call the Europeans, call one another, uh, don't call us, because we're busy in Asia. So that's my guess, I can't guarantee it, but I do think that that's the trend. Um, what I got out of the second question, uh, the first of the, the, the part of the second question is maybe all this kind of change is really what Condoleezza Rice wanted to get rid of the old regimes and will do just fine with the new Islamist movements. I don't actually think that's what she expected when she gave her fairly dramatic speech in which she said for 60 years we have supported uh, stability at the expense of democracy and we ended up getting neither. Now we're going to place our bets on democracy. Well, that was uh, followed shortly thereafter by the uh, 
Hamas victory in the Palestinian elections, and you didn't hear much more about uh, enthusiastic embrace of uh, democracy by uh, the Bush administration if it produces Islamist outcomes. I think the United States doesn't quite know how to respond to political Islam in its current manifestation. I don't think that there is any reason to believe that this is kind of a the new face of shrewd American imperial ambitions is to ingratiate itself with moderate Islam Islamists who are going to take over everywhere in the Middle East and be our new best friends. I just don't think it's uh, it, it makes any sense. The second question about Turkey is an interesting one because there we do have a mildly Islamically connected political party that's done extremely well and with whom Obama has developed a very good relationship. Erdogan is the leader with whom he has had more personal time in face-to-face -face and on the phone than any other political leader other than David Cameron. More than Sarkozy, more, maybe this week Sarkozy's catching up, but Erdogan and Obama have done quite a bit to uh, foster a relationship. And as one of my colleagues who was in government recently made a, gave a talk at my university where we had a conference on the US-Turkey-Israel. And a book just came out about it called Troubled Triangle. Buy it, it'd be great. Uh, but in it, this guy says, when you're in government and you see what the people dealing with Turkey are working on, we are cooperating in places like Afghanistan, Central Asia, um, in the Middle East now, on the Arab Spring, said there is a very wide range of issues on which the United States and Turkey are pretty much on the same wavelength. Not Iran and not every issue, but quite a bit. And the relationship is a pretty good one. He said, by contrast, and this is a guy who was very much in the previous administration, said, the people who deal with Israel have an inbox filled with problems. It's all damage control. So the contrast is striking. The visibility of the relationship with Israel in the American public is tremendous. But the actual reality is a lot of problems. The visibility of the US-Turkish relationship is minimal. But the depth of it, among those who know, is actually quite impressive. So that's just for what it's worth. I think it's uh, important to underscore. Um, Scenarios for Syria. Well, I think the United States has given up on Bashar al-Assad as potential reformer. That was kind of one trope that some people believed for a while. Um, the problem is it's very hard for most of us who know a little bit about Syria, and Hawaz knows much more than I do, to say what, what, would, what would, might come next. This is a regime that will not go easily. It's not going to, obviously, it's, uh, it's not an Egyptian-Tunisian you know, relatively quick transition. We've already seen that. Uh, I don't, also don't think it's going to turn out the way uh, Libya and Gaddafi did. This is a regime that has a core of support. Uh, the military may be splintering, but I don't think it's necessarily going to completely uh, collapse. And if it doesn't, I think the regime has some staying power. Now. Do we want to weaken Assad? I think the United States has come out pretty clearly saying that he should go. But do we have the capacity to do much about that? Um, not in my opinion, at least not in any, any very obvious way. Um, it is, I think, true that 
as people imagined what a new Syria would look like, and they talked to some of the leaders of the Syrian opposition groups, they're beginning to, to kind of have two competing models in, in mind. One of the kind of reassuring one that the good guys, you know, our secular nationalist friends will win and they will be grateful to us and others in the West who have supported them and they will cut their ties with Hezbollah, with Iran, with Hamas, make peace with Israel and, you know, life will be a happier uh, place. Um, there's another image that uh, is a little less reassuring, and it is that uh, the people we were talking to in the Syrian secular opposition uh, will not dominate uh, the post-Assad era, if there is post-Assad era anytime soon. Instead, it will be much more like the uh, Syrian Muslim brethren uh, asserting themselves, coming out from underground or, where, or wherever they've been. And that kind of a Syria will not want to make peace with Israel, will not want to have uh, very close relations with uh, the United States and might uh, might be a very difficult uh, uh, there might be a very difficult succession. I don't think anybody knows which of those scenarios is now most likely, even quite well-informed people. I'm certainly not able to make a guess. Prince Turkey and nuclear weapons. I think that what he said, if I, I read it quickly yesterday, was that if Iran not Israel, but if Iran gets nuclear weapons, then Saudi Arabia will need to consider doing it also. They've been living with a nuclear Israel for a very long time. That's not new. But what he was saying is that if Iran actually gets a nuclear weapon, then Saudi Arabia has to seriously think about doing so. Now note, he is not in the government. He is obviously an important figure in the royal family, but he's also the one who throws out trial balloons and sometimes they take off and sometimes they get shot down. But I think it's true that not just Saudi Arabia, but others, the moment that it is clear, if it becomes clear, that Iran has gone nuclear, not just capabilities, but real weaponization, is you will begin to see other countries say, well, if Iran can do it, why not us? Egypt, Turkey, as I said, little Gulf states, I mean, why not? You got the money. The technology is there for the buying. Uh, if you really think there is some value in having these things, uh, we could see actually quite a few countries over the next four or five years going down that road. Interestingly, that would almost immediately negate whatever advantage Iran thought it might be getting by going nuclear, which is one of the reasons I think they're not going to do it. I think they want to be right at the threshold where they could do it if need be, but the moment they do it, it kicks into play uh, all kinds of things that will actually make their acquisition of a nuclear weapon more a liability than an advantage. One last question. Uh, oh, Egypt, but it's, my note says that won't the fall of the Syrian regime hurt Israel? So I don't know what that has to do with Egypt, but maybe I missed a question. Um, I think the Israelis are puzzled about how to, how to read the Syrian scene. Uh, Bashar al-Assad has been a pretty good neighbor. Not in all ways. He does support political movements who give them a hard time. But look at the Syrian-Israeli border for the past, you know, since, since really the 1973 war, since the 1974 Syrian-Israeli negotiation, which succeeded, and they had a disengagement agreement. That has been one of the quietest borders facing the Israelis. Uh, one of the Israelis who was at this conference 
where we, we talked about the impact of the, the Arab Spring, said, you know, we're not so sure that change is such a good thing. Okay, Mubarak may not have been great for Egypt, but he was pretty good for Israel. Same thing with, with Assad. He's not necessarily so great for uh, Syria, but he's been a pretty good neighbor for us since, since the, the last war, which was actually a long time ago now. So he said, we like predictability, and all, all this unpredictability it makes us very nervous. Now, I think there is a counter-narrative in Israel that says, you know, maybe it'll be better. Maybe we'll get the nice, secular, you know, pro-Western, you know, Hezbollah-hating, Hamas-averse people coming to power in Syria, and then, this is the kind of Elliot Abrams neocon view, that once the nice regime comes to power in Syria, then we should give them the prize of leaning on the Israelis and saying, give back the Golan Heights, because that will help legitimize a new regime uh, if it's you know, democratic, pro-Western, and so forth. Now, I don't think it's going to be all that clear that we have an outcome that will lead to that. I, I actually think uh, Syria getting the Golan Heights back would have been a good thing under Bashar, would have been a good thing under Hafez, uh, in return for peace, and, and it would be a good thing for a future Syrian regime as well, as I said. But I don't think we can use it as a kind of lure to bring uh, a more pro-Western uh, group to power in Syria. I find, as I said earlier, that it's the, the uh, forecasting what's going to happen in Syria is, is, is uh, for me at least, a very difficult uh, project. And I think anybody who can tell you with certainty where things are headed is probably wrong.